in Exodus chapter 26, 31 to 35. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It should be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the class and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you should put the table on the north side. Then jumping to Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the veil that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on it. A gracious God and fathers, we come to your word, which is in one sense a mere revealing our sin and our need for Christ. In another sense is a guide, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. May we experience both of those purposes of your word this morning as we hear and understand and seek to live in light of it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There are moments in either personal history or worldly history or world history that are so consequential and life-changing for us that you remember where you were when it happened. There are those where were you when it happened moments. I wonder what some of those are for you. Well, one kind of world history moment that I remember where I was when it happened. I was in eighth grade, uh, social studies class, first hour at John Glenn Middle School, and a staff member rolled a TV into our social studies room and said, a plane has just crashed into a building in New York. You need to watch the news. That was a very consequential moment in recent world history that I will never forget where I was when it happened. In terms of personal history, I was on my couch in my apartment playing a video game against a friend, just seemed like a normal evening, and Ashley rudely interrupted and made me pause the game to tell me that she was pregnant with our first child. So it wasn't a rude interruption after all. That was a life-altering moment for me personally. I knew that I probably should stop playing video games at that point (laughs) and that I needed to be an adult. What are your I remember where I was moments of world history, personal history? Well, I'm sure for all of you, you have those moments we could go around the room and share them, but I'm going to guess that none of your moments or my moments even come close to being as unforgettable and as history-altering as what happened on a spring Friday around AD 30 in Jerusalem. For the priests who were serving in the temple that Friday, there was a I remember where I was moment like no other for them because they were probably serving in the holy place. There was a veil up there that had been up there for centuries upon centuries. And all of a sudden, in a moment, it tore from top to bottom. 
while they're going about their work. And not only did it tear from top to bottom, but it revealed to them the place that they could not go into. Only the high priest could go into. The holy of holies was left wide open in a moment. And so right after it happened, as they probably were started, started to recover from the shock and awe, for them initially, it seemed like a crime that had no suspect. The veil just tore. Who has come in and defiled God's holy place? Who has opened the way to the holy of holies that is meant to be closed off? And also for them, it seemed like an effect without a cause. Veils don't just tear themselves on spring Fridays in AD 30. And this could not be torn by any human strength because of its thickness. Well, initially, this event for them was as unexplainable as it was unforgettable and history-altering. The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. So who did it and why did it happen? What are its implications? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. The veil of separation. How did it come to be torn and what does that mean for us? But before we investigate the tearing of the veil, we first need to understand what the veil is, its original design, its original function. So if you look at Exodus 26, in Exodus 26, you're not just told about the veil. You're told about all of the curtains, all of the material that was woven together and designed into the tabernacle. And not just that, you're told how all of those designed veils and curtains and material was to be set up and arranged to give the tabernacle its shape and structure. So what you see in your bulletin in terms of the layout is really coming from Exodus 26. Exodus 26 is the architectural blueprints of the tabernacle. It's how we know how things were set up in this place. Now, I'm guessing for most of you, this is Exodus 26 is not the most riveting reading you've ever come across. Sometimes you're getting in your Bible reading plan, you have that initial launch at the beginning of the year, and you, you get to places like Exodus 26 and Perhaps blueprints aren't your, aren't your thing. You don't study them for fun, so you slow down. But there are details in the design, in the layout of the tabernacle, that are important for us because they teach us some things about the divine architect who's behind them. These are God's blueprints for us. And one lesson we learn from the blueprints is that God seems to have designed the coverings of the tabernacle to conceal the attractiveness of the tabernacle, to actually hide some of its beauty and glory from plain sight. Because from the outside, the tabernacle would not have looked like much to you, nor from the outside of it could you have seen much of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was surrounded by a thick curtain frame that stood about seven and a half feet tall. Now, I don't know if anyone here is over seven and a half feet tall. I don't think so. So think of this as a tall privacy fence that surrounds every single side of the tabernacle. So it not only kept people out and it limited the entrance to that one entrance on the east gate, but it really kept people from seeing in. I remember the first time I decided to drive along Jupiter Island. You have heard about it. I know, you know the people who have lived there. And I thought, you know, I want to drive down this way as I was heading to Stewart you know, to see these beautiful elaborate homes and yards I've been told about. Well, expectations did not meet reality at all. All I got was a face full of thick privacy hedges. That's all I saw. So I really know what sea grape looks like and how it grows and how it needs to be cut. The homes were concealed from view, much like the tabernacle was. It's to keep people out and also from from seeing in to a degree. Well, in addition to the frame around the tabernacle, there was also a concealing cover over all the rooms 
of the tabernacle. So covering over the holy place and the holy of holies, so the, the tabernacle proper, the rooms of the tabernacle, was four layers of incredibly thick material laid on top of each other. And so what you have is these four layers of material, and the innermost layer was this beautiful fine linen dyed blue with cherubim woven into its design. So if you look at verse 1 of Exodus 26, you'll see that material described there, that the cherubim were woven into it. But you wouldn't see that from the outside because it was covered by a beautiful white curtain made of goat's hair. But you wouldn't have seen that either because that was covered over by a beautiful covering of ram skin that was dyed a beautiful crimson red. But guess what? You would not have seen that either because it was covered over by a very plain, quite ordinary layer of leather animal skin. So all you would have seen from the outside is this thick layering of leather animal skin that was simply there to keep it waterproof. It was to keep moisture out, to keep rain out when the tabernacle was there. And compared to all the other layers of fabric, this was, this was plain, this was ordinary, this was nothing to write home about. So the most beautiful and attractive elements of the tabernacle, just the material, was veiled from the outside. Not to mention the things inside, the most precious material used in the tabernacle, the gold, the silver, is all inside, hidden from plain view. So in real estate, they always talk about, if you're going to put your home on the market, you need curb appeal. That's one of the first things people come up and see. Well, the ancient dwelling places of the so-called gods of the ancient Near East tried to implement that principle. They had curb appeal. They, they ornately displayed on the outside, this is the temple of so-and-so. Because what they lacked in a real deity, they, they tried to make up for in their external looks. And yet God did not follow that pattern at all. The tabernacle had no external form or majesty that would have impressed us, that would have drawn us to it. Its glory was veiled from plain sight. This seems to be one of God's patterns and ways of working throughout redemptive history. He seems to work and act in such a way that the glory and beauty of what he's doing is accomplished in ways that veil its beauty and glory from plain sight. Think of it. God chose the nation of Israel to be the people that is the vehicle for his mission to bless all the nations of the world. When he described to Israel why he chose them, he insulted them. He said, there are greater nations than you, far greater nations than you. You were really nothing when I chose you. In fact, I chose you because you were nothing. Talk about uh, self-esteem boost. To use uh, college football recruiting terms, they were no blue chip recruit at all. And yet he chose them. This was the nation he chose to work through. Or think of the incarnation, the sending of Christ. The son of God was born to a young, unwed, Israelite woman and was found lying in a feeding trough for animals. That's how the shepherds come and find him. That's how the magi from the east come and find the savior of the world. And then at the end of his life, we see a plaque over his cross, a Roman cross, a Roman instrument of crucifixion says, behold, the king of the Jews. And on each side of him are two criminals condemned to death. And he's being mocked by the crowds He's wearing a crown of thorns and he is in agony and suffering in human weakness. And yet what is that? What is the cross? The cross is the power and glory of the gospel. Veiled in the 
humanity's weakness, the suffering of the Savior, is the power of the gospel displayed to us. So God, in some sense, conceals and veils the beauty and glory of what he's doing. Well, the coverings also not just conceal the attractiveness of the tabernacle externally, but internally, if you were to go inside, the coverings revealed the heavenliness of the tabernacle. So from the outside, externally, they conceal the attractiveness, but internally, they reveal the heavenliness of the tabernacle. Look at verse 1 of Exodus 26. I alluded to this earlier, but let's read it. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twine linen, and blue and purple and scarlet arms. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. So each of the coverings of the tabernacle are embroidered with heavenly angelic beings all throughout their fabric. So the priest enters the tabernacle proper. He looks up and he sees overhead in the blue curtain above him a whole host of angelic beings artistically rendered and shining in the light of the golden lampstand above him. So when you think of angels in the scriptures, one of the things we know about them is that they dwell near to the heavenly throne room of God. When Isaiah gets a vision into the heavenly throne room, when Ezekiel gets a vision into the heavenly throne room, he sees closest to the throne of God, the angelic beings, and they are otherworldly creatures. And so the point of their artistic, symbolic presence inside the tabernacle is that as the priest moves further in, closer to the Holy of Holies, it's as if he's also moving further up. He's not just traveling horizontally. It's as if he's traveling vertically. He's leaving earth, as it were, and coming closer to the heavenly dwelling place of God. Because what the tabernacle seems to be designed to communicate is that this is the touch point between heaven and earth. As the Garden of Eden was kind of the touch place between heaven and earth where God dwelt with man, so now the tabernacle, in a unique way, is a place where the holy God graciously stoops to meet with creatures formed out of the dust of the earth. And so as much as it symbolizes the priest's ascension as he's walking in and seeing the heavenly angelic host above him, like Moses going up Mount Sinai, it symbolizes God's condescension to stoop down toward man and meet with his people. So when it says that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, that is new and unique in a way, but it was also partly displayed through the tabernacle that God was with them. He was Emmanuel, but not yet quite like it was in Christ. Well, also this, ange- this angelic heavenly display woven into the fabric of the tabernacle was meant to communicate that the worship of the true and living God was meant to be an otherworldly, extraordinary occasion. That worship in the house of the Lord was to be set apart. It was to be sacred. It was to be reverent. It was to be, as it were, a heavenly occasion, that this is the people of God meeting with the holy God of heaven, that not even the heaven of heavens can contain this God, and yet we're meeting with him. So in other words, worship around the tabernacle for Israel was not to be common. It was not to be casual. It was not to be amusing. It was not in any way to be a copy and mimic of the way the world worships their gods or the way the world goes about their business. And Moses makes this point. So in Deuteronomy, he's preparing the nation of Israel to go into the land that they're going to possess, surrounded by other nations that do things other ways. And he warns them that the worship of God should not be a mimic at all of what the nations do. 
So he says this in Deuteronomy 12, verses 29 to 31. He says, the Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. But when you have driven them out and settled in their land, and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, how do these nations worship their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. So what he's warning them against is this common temptation. I want to look at what the world does, and I want to mimic it because I want to be like them. So much of what is falsely called corporate worship is nothing more than worshiptainment. It is a form of earthly entertainment adopted by the church just to draw people in. It is not a heavenly encounter with a holy God. I feel like if if you were to put it into a movie line, it would be the line from Gladiator where Russell Crowe says, are you not entertained? That is so much of what corporate worship is. And yet that is not the focus of what worship should be. The goal of worship is not to keep someone from being bored. It is to make sure that God is not dishonored, that he is held in high esteem. You know, imagine one Sunday if we came in here and all the elders were standing up here at the beginning of service and it was very quiet and with somber looks on our face. You'd probably be quiet. Do you think something's happened? And and, uh, we'll say Mark's going to apologize on behalf of the elders today. We wanted to let you know that last week we're deeply saddened by this, but someone was bored in worship last week and we want to ask your forgiveness. And we're going to work on that. But that often is kind of what our our flesh wants. I don't want to be bored. Entertain me. Amuse me. And yet God says worship is about me. I'm the center. I'm the one who's graciously stooped down to redeem you and save you. Glorify me. We've looked at the coverings. Now let's get to the veil. This is kind of the, the central piece of the material in the tabernacle. So the coverings, in one sense, conceal the attractiveness of the tabernacle and reveal the heavenliness of it, but it's the veil that enforced the restrictiveness of the tabernacle. The outer veil is described in verses 36 and 37 of Exodus 26, and that was the veil placed just outside the tabernacle. It's kind of the doorway into the tabernacle proper, and what that veil did was it restricted the average citizen from going where only the priests of Israel could go. But then, in addition to that, you have the inner veil. Look at verse 33 of Exodus 26 with me. Verse 33. And you shall hang the veil from the class and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. So there's the outer veil, which separates the average citizen from where only a priest can go. And then there's the inner veil, which separates the average ordinary priest in Israel from where only the high priest could go. It separates the holy place from the holy of holies or the most holy place. And it's not just restrictive in terms of who could go in, only the high priest. It's restrictive in terms of when that one person can go in. So Leviticus 16, I'm not not gonna turn there, but Leviticus 16 describes the one time, once a year, that one person could pass through that veil for one brief moment by one single means. It is very restrictive who can come through this veil. The high priest on the day of atonement with the blood of a sin offering to sprinkle it on the mercy seat for a brief moment was the only person 
the only occasion and the only means for passing through that veil and going into the Holy of Holies. And it was a dangerous venture because you are you're coming as close as heaven and earth meet, as close as the presence of God uniquely manifests itself to the people. And given what happened to Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, which we looked at briefly last week, tradition tells us that a rope would be tied around the waist of the high priest on this one day once a year when they went into this one place. Because if he drops dead on the job, they don't want to wait a year to recover the body. (laughs) That would stink. So they would pull him out if he did. Now, it's tradition. I'm not quite sure how historically that is, but there, there seems to be some evidence for that being the case. Because they understood what the veil meant. The veil was a no trespassing sign that you could not afford to ignore. I was in Israel on a study tour, and there were certain areas of land that had signs marking it and blocking it off. And they said, do not walk potential live landmines here. Those were signs that I did not ignore. And the veil was one of those signs. The veil was also a a, a stay back sign that you couldn't ignore. Holiness and sinfulness do not mix and mingle well. And we're not talking, they don't mix and mingle well like cream and coffee doesn't mix and mingle well because cream pollutes it and, and dilutes it. We're talking, it does not mix well like methane and fire do not mix well. When there's leaking gas in the house, you don't light matches, you get out because it's explosive, it's dangerous. Well, in Exodus 19, the glory cloud descends on Mount Sinai. It's thunder and lightning and this booming authoritative voice. And God tells Moses, set strict boundaries. Tell the people not to cross this line. Tell them, do not even touch the mountain lest they perish. Then Exodus 20, verse 18, after the 10 commandments are given, it says there was thunder, flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain was smoking, and the people were afraid and trembled. And what did they do? They stood far off. They didn't have to be told by Moses anymore, don't break the lines. They stood far off. They did not need a veil in that moment or a theology lesson to tell them, this is dangerous and I'm going to keep my distance. When you visit Niagara Falls and you see the majesty and power of that water flowing over, 75,750 gallons per second, you don't need an observation fence to tell you don't play in the water here. You stand back. Well, the veil of separation was that stay, stay back, stand back reminder But it was also like a locked door to a room and a place that you desperately want access to. It's like that door that you pass by, and each time you do, you hope that the door is open or it's unlocked. For me, being a a Narnia nerd, every time I see a wardrobe, I'm hoping, maybe this is the one. Maybe Maybe this is it. Well, if you look at verse 31 of Exodus 26, you'll notice that this veil also has cherubim skillfully woven into it like the material that would have been above the priest's head. So above him and in front of him, he has cherubim skillfully woven into the veil. But this veil, guarding the weight of the Holy of Holies, was a unique reminder of Genesis chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. When Adam and Eve are sent out of the Garden of Eden because of their rebellion and sin, if they were to turn around, here's the last thing they would see. Genesis 3, 23. The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
But they don't have door locks back then. They just had cherubims with flaming swords to say, do not pass. So every time a priest comes in the Holy of Holies, he gets near the veil of separation. It's as if they're coming right up to the doorway of the paradise of God. That, that true home, that place that they were, we were made to dwell in the presence of God, his life-giving, light-shining presence, and it's locked every time. He can't get in. But one day, once a year, through one person, by one means, God shows the nation of Israel what the key to that door looks like. It looks like a high priest with the blood of an unblemished, spotless lamb coming in and sprinkling the mercy seat clean where God will meet with them. The Day of Atonement was God's way of saying, There's only one key that unlocks this one door. Only the high priest, only by the means of the blood of an unblemished lamb. So with that background in mind, hopefully you can see why the day that the veil of separation was torn was an unforgettable history-altering day. So after restricting access for centuries, hundreds and hundreds of years, in a single brief moment, the no trespassing sign is taken down. The stay-back ordinance has been rescinded and the locked door has flung wide open. And Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51 tells us how this happened. It shows us the cause of this effect. It shows us the person behind this tearing. Matthew 27, 50 to 51. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So Jesus breathed his last human earthly breath. And behold, Matthew tells us, in that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This veil-tearing effect has a cause, and the cause is the Son of God, the sinless Savior, breathing his last breath. So the tearing of the veil was, in a sense, the exclamation point on one of Jesus' final sentences. It is finished. Exclamation point, veil torn. That's what's going on. Because Christ alone demonstrated in that moment that he has the power and authority to take down the no trespassing sign because of who he is uniquely. He is the last Adam, the true and better Adam. That first veil was placed there in response to the first Adam's disobedience. And now that veil is torn down and taken down because of the last Adam's obedience and righteousness. He is the God-man. He is the one mediator between God and man because in him exists the fullness of deity and the fullness of humanity perfectly, without division, without confusion, without separation, because only in and through him can God dwell with man in perfect fellowship, in unhindered unity, in undisturbed peace. That's why he can tear the veil. And he can tear the veil. He can remove that stay back order because of what he offered for us. Hebrews 9.12 says he entered not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his very own blood. The blood of animals could never take away sin. It could never transform the sinner. It only had a ceremonial effect, a typical effect, a shadowy effect. But the blood of Christ speaks a better word than all the words spoken by the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system can only speak the word shadow, type, pointing forward. But Christ, his blood, speaks the word substance, reality, finished. Sacrificial system must constantly say to those who offer it, not enough, more is needed, insufficient. That's what it says over and over. But Christ's blood speaks the word once for all, 
sufficient, fully, perfectly, forever. And Christ alone holds the key that opens the door to paradise with God because of where he made the sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 9, 24 and 26 tells us this. For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are mere copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor did he go to offer himself repeatedly as the high priests enter the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then Jesus would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The author of Hebrews says is that the reason the veil tore is because Christ was saying, the earthly shadow is done. The earthly replica is no longer needed. I have entered into the real Holy of Holies and I have sprinkled clean the throne of grace so that you may come in now. So Christ did not come to deal with earthly replicas. He came to bring about heavenly, eternal realities. It's as if he's, he's bringing in the age to come through his death. And he's saying this, this age is passing away now. The replicas are gone. Realities are here. He's a superior high priest who enters a superior temple in heaven and offers a superior sacrifice on our behalf. Well, now the question remains, what does it mean? What's the significance of this veil for us? We know what it is. We know who tore it, but what does it mean for us? Well, first, the tearing of the veil means that the separating system has been fulfilled and is no longer needed. The separating system that it represented has been fulfilled. You're not under law, but under grace. Law came through Moses, but grace and truth has come through Christ. You did not have to, when you came to worship this morning, submit to an elaborate cleansing ceremony in order for you to come to worship today. You just simply came. I hope some of you washed your hands, did those things. But there was no required system that you had to follow to purify yourself to approach worship this morning. Because our cleansing is not in ceremony, it is in Christ. We are clean by his blood. Together for worship this morning, we did not have to get on a plane together, fly to Tel Aviv, then get in a bus and drive to Jerusalem to go inside a temple at the site that God had determined for us. You simply came to 110 Park Street, to this old, let's be honest, kind of dilapidated building with carpet that needs to be replaced because God is not confined by place and space. He meets us where the people of God gather to worship him in spirit and truth. He comes to meet with us in a unique and special way wherever we gather as the body of Christ to worship him in spirit and truth. So what this means is any attempt to recover the old system, any attempt to re-implement its temporary types, or even to try and replicate it with your own ingenious rituals and regulations, is to try and stitch together the veil that Christ has torn by his life, death, and resurrection. And what Christ has torn apart, let no man put back together. Well, second, the tearing of the veil means that the separating door has flung open. The separating door has been open. In the Old Testament, there's one person once a year who could enter the Holy of Holies. So there is one Savior who has opened one door that leads to the Father. Only the death of Christ tore the veil. And there was only one veil torn by the death of Christ. That is important to know. There's only one way 
to approach this one door. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there's only one Savior who we can approach in this manner. He who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. As one pastor wisely stated, all roads lead to God. It's a true statement. You need to understand. All roads lead to God. Only one road leads to a saving encounter with that one true God. And Christ has opened it by his death. And so all who would try to pass through that veil, God demands perfect, entire, exact, perpetual obedience. That's the requirement to get through. And that is a standard you will never be able to meet on your best day. You are not good enough, and that is good news. Because Christ not only meets that standard, but he offers to us his standard-meeting righteousness. In Christ, it's as if we, lowly peasants we be, come walking up to the grandest castle, and at the doorway to this castle is a guard who is armed to the hilt. And he says, you cannot pass. And then all of a sudden, the king's son comes to the door in that moment and says, it's okay, they can come in, they're with me. And the guard moves out of the way, she's his sword and says, welcome friend of the king and the king's son. That's what it means to come in and through Christ. Well, third, the tearing of the veil means that the separating veil can never be repaired. It can never be repaired. In most situations, you do not wanna hear the words, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do to repair it. There's nothing we can do to fix it uh, or heal it. But in this case, it is a glorious statement. It is good news that this veil cannot be repaired. It's been torn for good. And listen to how Charles Spurgeon describes the implications of this. For believers, the veil is not rolled up, but it is rent. The veil was not unhooked and carefully folded up and put away so that it might be placed back up at some future time. Oh no, the divine hand took it and rent it from top to bottom. It can never be hung up again. That is impossible. Between those who are in Christ Jesus and their great God, there will never be another veil of separation. Who shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Only one veil was made, and as that is, it is rent. The one and only separation is destroyed. I delight to think of this. The devil himself can never divide me from God. My sins can never separate me from God. My trials can never cut me off from God. God has torn the veil and nothing can mend it again. That is good news. Well, finally, the tearing of the veil means that the separating sign has been replaced. Since the veil has been torn, no trespassing has been replaced with this. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So no trespassing is now replaced with come unto me all, all who are weary. Since the veil has been torn, stay back has been replaced with this. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the veil that is through his flesh. We have a great priest over the house of God. So let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So stay back is now draw near. Draw near with full assurance. 
And since the veil has been torn, restricted access has been replaced with this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us with boldness draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive grace and mercy to help in our time of need. So restricted access is now bold. I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ, my own. So why was the veil torn? The veil was torn and open so that big sinners like you and I could fit through that veil. Let's pray.